Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by Janus Henderson Investors. As such, the sponsor can make suggestions for topics, but final control over the content remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Hamish Chamberlain, who is the Head of Global Sustainable Equity at Janus Henderson. Hamish, welcome to the show. Hi, Walter. Thank you very much. So we always like to know a little bit more about your background and how you got started in investing. Can you take us through that? Absolutely. And I suppose there's a, uh, a long version and a, a short version. Uh, the short version is that when I left university, I really wanted to get a job um, in, in markets. I'd always been fascinated by global stock markets. And uh, I, at first I, I tried and I failed. So I ended up going to an accounting firm and doing my accountancy qualification. But I never lost that you know, interest in, 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 in markets. And so as soon as I qualified, I tried, I tried again. And, and this time I succeeded in getting a role as an investment analyst in a global equities team. And so that's where it all started um, almost 20 years ago. The longer version, where did my interest in markets come from? And I was always that annoying child that was always asking why. Um, and I've always been an extremely curious person. So I, I've always wanted to know how the world works. And, and I loved all subjects at school. And I ended up studying science at, at university. And I've always been fascinated by um, how sort of the natural world interacts with the financial world. And, and, and that's something that has been you know, a very big feature in, 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 in my career. So you got straight into the, the global equity space. But where, when did the sustainable part came into the equation? As, as I just said, I've, I've always been interested in the natural world and how it interacts with, with the financial world, with the economic, with, with the global economy. Uh, I actually studied science at university, so I'm, I'm a chemist by training uh, and I've always been interested in, in, in science and nature. And when starting in, in, in global fund management, I actually started, ironically, perhaps analyzing the natural resources sectors. Um, I, was, I, was, I was covering oil companies and mining companies right. uh, to begin with in my career, which is, which, which is quite ironic given that I don't invest in those companies anymore as a, as a, as a sustainable fund manager. But it's, 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 it was an amazing lesson to really learn about how these companies operate. I, I went down the rabbit hole. I looked at all the sort of the, you know, the oil fields around the world, understand it, you know, went deep into peak oil and, and actually came to the conclusion that, 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 that peak oil was more a question of peak oil demand rather than peak oil supply. And, and then I kind of started going in the direction of, um, of, of analyzing more technology companies. And that was when the opportunity came up to become involved in um, a sustainable, uh, on, on a sustainable investment product. And, and so three years after starting as a, as, as a generalist investment 
analyst in, 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 a, in a global equities team, the opportunity arose to start working on a global sustainable equity fund. And, and, and that was back in, uh, in 2011. Yeah. So that background in energy, does that help with sort of the sustainable, uh, sustainability side of things? Because I can imagine that you would have a pretty good insight into sort of what companies might be holding stranded assets and, and, and which ones are more likely to pull through. Yes, you know, perhaps putting my science hat on here, but you know, energy is something that just you know explains everything when you really go down into the deep fundamentals. I mean, energy is what powers the global economy. And we have to get our energy from somewhere. And it just happens to be that, you know, currently the dominant energy um, source that we use is, is fossil fuels, which is really just concentrated sunlight uh, or sun power from, 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 from thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. So ultimately, all of our energy really comes from the sun. You know, solar energy, wind energy comes from the sun. And, and uh, I came to this realization that, you know, it's the ultimate sort of fungible resource in a way, and that there is no sort of rule that we have to be using um, sort of depleting fossil resources. And if we can find the technology that's going to free up all this essentially renewable, free, um, in perpetuity almost energy, um, that, that, that would be amazing. And so that's when I started losing interest, I suppose, in resource companies, because I felt that they didn't have a long-term future. And actually the, the, the future lay with, with sort of technology, um, if you will. I, I read a recent paper of yours uh, that, that sort of touches upon the energy transition and, and, and sort of the, what, what has been termed as the fourth uh, industrial revolution. And, and I might jump a little bit ahead here, but I, I was thinking it's almost as if everybody else is now becoming a sustainable fund manager. Do you see sort of that, that focus on electrification, on the, 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 the move to more renewable energy? Are you getting worried that people are coming into your space? So I think it's inevitable frankly, that people will come more and more towards uh, sustainable investing. And I suppose there's a key question on how you, how you define sustainable investing. And perhaps we can you know, go on to that in, in, in a moment or a bit later on. But for us, we've always had this belief, this high conviction that there is an incredible alignment between thinking about big sustainability issues, thinking about big environmental and social issues, and then thinking about finding great companies to invest in. So we, we've always believed that it's almost axiomatic that if you want to generate good long-term wealth, if you want to generate great investment returns, um, you need to think about big environmental and social issues. You need to think about finding the companies that are, that, that are aware of these issues and are calibrating their strategies in, in such a way that they're on the right side of them. Because you know, in, you know, the world is changing so fast and we see so much technological change that the companies that aren't adapting, we believe ultimately will be going into secular decline over the coming decade. Yeah. So you just mentioned there, what, what actually is sustainable? How do you define it? So if we look from your perspective as a fund manager, what is the difference between your approach and say a fund manager with a decent ESG policy? First of all, perhaps if, if, if I just attack, uh, and, and I think I, I, would, I would like to use the word attack here, um, attack um, the acronym ESG. Uh, <laughs> and I think this is a source of much, much confusion uh, around the world. This idea that ESG is, is, is a monolith and you either do ESG or you don't do ESG. And certainly we're, we're in a much better place today in terms of understanding of how of what ESG really is than we were five years ago. But we've, we've always been very, very firm in our belief that it doesn't make any sense to talk about ESG scoring. ESG covers a kaleidoscope of different issues. 
And, and some of those issues are have no correlation at all, or, or sometimes in complete conflict with each other. So just for an example, you know, decarbonisation and poverty can be in complete conflict um, from time to time. And, you know, decarbonisation and diversity and inclusion, there's, there's no correlation between those two issues. And so the idea that you can sort of take all these different issues and, and collapse them into a sort of single rating or score, we found um, you know, it doesn't stand up to sort of, you know, intellectual scrutiny. And so we feel with ESG that you have to be very clear at the outset. I mean, one of the things we've always said is that you have to be very clear at the outset, how exactly are you taking different environmental, social or governance issues and incorporating them into your investment process? Because it's a very broad church and you can get two people talking about sustainability, one who is investing in clean energy and another who is investing in the healthcare sector. They can both be talking about ESG, both be talking about sustainability, but you've got two completely different investment strategies there. Yeah. So that for, therefore, at the outset, you just have to be very, very clear about what it is that you're doing and how that relates to your investment strategy. And again, we come back to this point, how does it relate to your investment strategy? As in, how are you going to deliver great investment returns and why? Because of, you know, you know why are you going to deliver great investment returns in relation to the environmental or social factors that you're choosing? You've got to relate them you know, you know, material issues to your investment process because of this alignment. So we've always had a very broad approach to sustainable investing. We are a global equity strategy. I mean, ultimately, our mission has always been very, very simple. And that is to demonstrate that we can generate superior performance to a standard or, or classic global equity universe or, or peer group. So our benchmark has always been the MSCI World Benchmark, a standard global benchmark. And we've always had the mission that we want to produce better performance than that benchmark. In other words, there should be no performance penalty if you're going to follow a sustainable investing route. Yeah. Um, and quite the opposite, we've always made, you know, we, we've always had the belief that there is a performance bonus from adopting a sustainable investing approach that actually increases our chances of generating outperformance. And the reason we believe that, why do we believe that? Well, we believe that, again, it's this link between the natural world and the financial world, that the two don't live in isolation. And it, it, almost at its core, that's what sustainability is. And that's what ESG is, is recognizing that um, this, you know, sort of academic um, construction that we've created in sort of global economics, you know, can't exist in isolation. It's got a very deep interaction with the natural world, with science, with nature. And therefore, we think it makes absolute sense to think very carefully and deeply about how companies interact or sort of how, that, how they cross that divide, how the um, financial economy. So we're looking for companies that we believe are on the right side of these you know, big environmental and social um, megatrends that are putting the global economy under so much pressure, climate change, resource constraints, growing and aging populations. You know, these, 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 these trends are, have very real investment implications. They're putting the global economy under so much pressure. And so we always have a very simple belief, but we think it's really powerful that we've got to find the companies that are on the right side of these megatrends, uh, the companies that are producing goods and services that are aligned with the world that we want to live in, aligned with the development of a sustainable global economy. And we always start our investment process with the question, is the world a better place because of this company? That's the very first question we ask. Right. And of course, the natural question you're going to ask me is, how do you define better? And, and that's where we've got a very clear framework for evaluating companies against this you know, and, and how we define better. And we've got these 10 sustainable development investment themes that cover both environmental and social factors. So we've got five environmental themes, um, which are 
cleaner energy, efficiency, water, environmental services, and sustainable transport. And then we've got five social themes, knowledge and technology, quality of life, health, sustainable property and finance, and safety. And we're looking for companies that are aligned with those themes because we believe those are the types of companies that are more likely to grow and compound over time. So these are sort of your own uh, uh, sustainable development goals that you've set there. Well, well, yes, but so, so this, our, our strategy is, is very old and we've developed our framework long before the sustainable development goals. When you sort of look back over that, that history, do you see people's approach to sustainability changing over the years? And, and I'm thinking particularly around, it, it, it seemed that when it, people became aware that this might be important to keep in mind, is that it was sort of a risk management type of approach. Well, I think we're starting to move to a different look at it where, as you said, this could potentially be impacting the longevity of companies and the longevity of business models. And so there might actually be a, a, a source of alpha there. Can you tell me a little bit about that sort of debate, how you have seen that change over the years? Yes, I think it's always been there, but it hasn't become of critical importance. We've had this linear economic model, and we still do have a linear economic model. And what do I mean by linear economic model? It's one that's based on the idea of extracting natural resources, energy, minerals, and these are ultimately depleting natural resources. They are finite in nature, and that's, that, that's just the definition um, of, of, of these natural resources that we're extracting. And I suppose at a very simplistic level, you can just say, it's not sustainable because they are finite. At some point, they will run out. Yeah. Um, you know, sustainability is about sort of making sure, you know, the definition of sustainability, I, have, I haven't talked about this yet, but the definition of sustainability is essentially generating wealth today without jeopardizing the ability of future generations to generate wealth. This idea that we're not depleting, that, I mean, that is the definition of sustainability, don't deplete. And yet our economic model today is based, is, is, an, is, is a model of depletion. We extract, we then manufacture and create products, which we then ultimately throw away. I mean, so on, on the one hand, we've got a massive depletion problem, and that depletion problem is then feeding into a massive pollution problem because we can't deal with the waste. And this is basically a really terrible economic model, especially when you throw that into a context of uh, an increasing global population. You know, we, we've got to essentially you know, produce ever more goods and services to satisfy the needs of a growing population. This is a huge problem. Um, and it's always been there ultimately, but we've, because the world is big and essentially there's been sort of, you know, we've been able to throw away this stuff without particularly noticing it for a long time. Um, you know, there were people back in the, in the fifties in the sort of, you know, talking about how plastic was going to be a huge problem um, and people didn't really listen to them. Um, yeah. But everyone now today recognizes that plastic is a huge problem. And it's unfortunately difficult to jump into the sea without finding a plastic bag near you or some piece of plastic on, on the beach. And that's all over the world. And again, with, with the energy um, crisis, you know, for a long time, oil and the price of energy stayed very, very low, incredibly low, which sort of ultimately turbocharged economic growth. We had the most amazing period of economic growth post the Second World War um, in, in the 20th century. And that was just turbocharged by this incre incredibly cheap, abundant oil. And then over the last few decades, that picture has been changing because we've had these oil price spikes that have actually contributed to economic um, downturns. You know, I remember very, very well the oil price spike in um, 2007, 2008, 
and 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 the consequences for the global economy then yeah. and essentially the oil price going up is a bit like the central bank raising interest rates it really is it's actually quite deflationary in nature because it really crimps people's ability to spend you know the point is that i'm trying to make very perhaps a bit long-windedly is that this has always been an issue but these but it's really come into focus in the last couple of decades because we're getting to the point where it's very visible the strains on our fossil fuel energy system and it doesn't take much to create price spikes and at the same time the pollution um, is just becoming ever more evident and whether that's plastic pollution or, or climate pollution ultimately you know the, the impacts of a changing climate that's basically just pollution we're, we're polluting the atmosphere with carbon dioxide yeah so a key focus is on uh, electrification on um, decarbonization and, and sometimes I look at sort of these, these broader themes, and I think that there seems to be a lot of reliance on technology there. And I'm making a little bit of a beeline here to, to COP26, where that was one of the criticisms where they said, well, they just decided that technology is the solution, so they don't have to do much else. Are we over-relying on the ability to, you know, invent our way out of this crisis? Um, no, I don't think we are. And And why do I think that? Well... I honestly think it's our only option. I mean, first of all, I think the technology exists that enables us to invent our way out of this crisis. So I don't think we have to believe in a, um, a new technology that doesn't yet exist. Ultimately, the sustainability problem, as you look at it today, looking at these big environmental and social issues, um, we can solve it in one of two ways. We can either innovate and get out of the crisis. Uh, we we ultimately take that view. It's an innovation problem. Or we can all become monks and nuns and live and become ascetics um, and, and revoke the consumer world that we live in. And I don't think we're going to do that. Uh, I don't think many of us want to do that. So um, it's either that or we innovate. Um, so let's, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think hopefully everyone can agree that the path forward is, is, is one of innovation. And, and the great news is that the technology is there um, that's going to enable us to succeed. A lot of people ask me about you know, net zero. You know, can we do it? You know, can, we, can we do it? Um, so it's my belief that we can do it, but the big thing that I don't know, like most other people around the world, I'd say everyone, is can we do it in time? Right, yeah, that, that's the big question. That's the big question. Can we do it in time? And, and the honest answer is, I don't know. But I'm not sure that really matters from an investment perspective. In fact, I know it doesn't matter from an investment perspective because whether it happens in 2040, 2050, or 2060, what I do know is that the direction of travel is that we're going to try to make it happen. And that's all we really care about as investors. You know, what's the direction of travel? Uh, you know, I'm a great believer that in investing, you want to swim with the current. You know, ultimately, it's a ruinous investment strategy to continually swim against the tide. Um, you know, maybe if you've got a short-term horizon and you're a trader, you can take short-term positions and sort of capture short-term opportunities when, um, you know, when you're swimming against the tide. But ultimately, you want to you know, get on with the direction of long-term travel. And what we see are these incredibly powerful secular trends around decarbonization. And the two things that are driving decarbonization are ultimately digitalization and electrification. We need to electrify the global economy. We need to move away from a fossil analog economy, essentially, towards an electric digital economy. And that is the big defining trend of the next several decades. So I just briefly mentioned there COP26 and, and some of the criticism on it there. What is your take on that? Did they come up with any uh, agreements that you are, you know, enthusiastic about? 
it um, perhaps it should surprise me, but it it it, it, it for some reason it still doesn't um, surprise me um, how perpetually negative the global media can be. You know, the, the, it's always bad news when you read the press. I mean, I really think there ought to be a health warning when you pick up the newspaper or turn on the news. So we 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 took a very positive view of of COP26, and and I'd say the two key things that we um, you know that, that that gave us this positive view. Uh, one, there is just clear political alignment on the need to decarbonize. And again, you know, without getting too lost in the detail, the point is, is that, you know, all these nations came together and they're in agreement that we need to decarbonize. And of course, there are some nations that are singled out for acting slower than we would like them to act. But the point is they're acting and they're decarbonizing. And in COP26, they agreed that instead of meeting once every five years to review the nationally determined contributions, as in the pathway to decarbonisation, there's now a commitment to meet every year to review that. And, and that's a really, really important point, because I think it's, it's key to remember that there is this feedback loop or reflexivity between politicians and between capital markets and, shall we say, technology and innovation. And ultimately, politicians, they like to push against an open door. That's the easiest way to make policy, um, to see a trend, and then politicians can jump on that trend and accelerate it or perhaps decelerate it, depending on what they want to do. Yeah. And, and here we've got, you know, a very dynamic, you know, picture of innovation around clean technology. You know, frankly, over the last decade, despite all the political turmoil, companies have been busy innovating and working out how to decarbonize. Um, and that's what we've seen over the last decade. We're very exciting about that bottom-up view of all the new sort of, you know, initiatives, you know, innovation technology and in, in energy, um, you know, across multiple sectors. And perhaps we can touch on that, you know, sort of how it is cutting across multiple sectors. But we see broad-based innovation. And the fact that we're now going to review these, you know, these, uh, the, these commitments every year, you know, fills me with hope because it, this is a dynamic situation. And as the costs continue to come down, as the technology continues to be commercialized, politicians will be able to step on that accelerator harder and harder. And that's exactly what we see happening. So let's not get too focused on the exact minutiae of, you know, what happened at this year's COP26. The direction of travel is very positive. Yeah. And the other big positive that we took away from COP26 is that, you know, we're going to go, we are moving towards a, you know, um, global carbon pricing and global carbon markets. And that's going to be a very important factor in, in accelerating decarbonization. Yeah. And in the trend of, of, of moving ahead, we, we also saw uh, China committing to carbon neutrality in 2060. How important do you think that is? I, I think it's a, a very positive signal. And I have no doubt that the Chinese will, um, I, I'm, I'm very confident they will beat that, frankly. So I think, you know, at, at a government level, there's no, there's, there's no incentive really to overpromise uh, and underdeliver. I, I think governments tend to do the opposite. They, they need to create signals. And, and, and the signal is that, is that China is going to decarbonize. And I have no doubt that they will beat that. Because if you look at the pace of innovation in clean technology in China, they're actually doing a lot better than a lot of the rest of the world. I mean, China is the leading electric car market. Yeah. Um, and they are arguably leading um, um, the, the world there. So uh, I think I think we shouldn't get too hung up on these big dates in the future. Fair enough. Now, of course, um, we're in the middle of a, a global pandemic, um, and um, we just got now a new variant again that is causing all sorts of trouble. But how do you see sort of this this period affecting sustainable themes and in, in, in companies? It's very clear that the pandemic has reinforced 
the sustainable themes or the sustainability trends that were that were focused on. Uh, no question about it. And uh, I think the pandemic has highlighted a degree of fragility in or sort of it's, it's, it's highlighted how vulnerable we can be. And, you know, especially around sort of global supply chains. And there's a really interesting dynamic there around global supply chains and, and how the pandemic has sort of, you know, put those into disarray. And, and we're now sort of suffering the consequences of that coming out the other side. Mm. Um, but perhaps the, the but, but perhaps a more positive lesson at the beginning from the pandemic is that we are that that mankind is resilient and mankind can you know innovate quickly and and adapt. Um, I mean, I just I'm just so impressed at the pace at which we develop these vaccines, and I think that's a very positive signal um, in respect of other areas where we need to change and adapt. And and I think we we will do it quickly when we need to do it. I think you know, in a recent paper, you, you talked a little bit about some of the winners and losers from uh, the pandemic. And um, I was interested to see you. You mentioned one Australian company there, Atalassian. Can you tell me a little bit about why you think they, they come out of this sort of on top? Yeah, so we we do have um, um, uh, you know a, a few Australian investments. Atlassian has been a very successful one for us. We think they are you know a you know a real national champion you know, and a really amazing management team, amazing company culture. And they've got a great vision for where they want to take the company uh, as well. So um, I've always been impressed. And when whenever I visited Australia, I've always been impressed with the uh, entrepreneurial and can-do um, spirit of, of 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 Australians. And we find you know exciting companies um, in the Australian market. Um, so I'm very optimistic about um, the Australian economy. Um, and lastly, I think is a real national champion. Uh, it's on, on on a high level, it's obviously playing into this this whole digitalization, you know, trend, uh, you know, around around digital communication, digital collaboration, effective project management, and you know, I think I think that you know, to take a step back, that is one of the key things that we are um, focused on, and, and a lot of our companies that are exposed to digitalization did very well through the pandemic. I mean, on a very simplistic level, the pandemic ultimately led to a shutdown in our physical lives of moving around and doing stuff and so we it pushed everyone into sort of you know a, a digital life now you know i i definitely don't want to spend 100 of my life in the digital world I, I frankly i'm not a big fan of this idea of, of spending my life in the metaverse <laughs> i was just about to say we also experienced the metaverse already <laughs> yeah, we've uh, we we've actually never invested in, in 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 meta you know previously known as facebook that's never been an investment we've made yeah um, but we do see lots of exciting um, um, applications for the metaverse in other industries, uh, and we think it can really accelerate innovation in, you know, in life sciences, um, in, in industrial technology, um, and, um, and so we think that could be a very powerful tool. So we do have some exposure to to, to the metaverse in, in in other names that we invest in. Yeah, that's an interesting concept, uh, the, the metaverse. <laughs> I think um, how it integrates with our day-to-day life. Probably people are a little bit more open to it now, but. Um, when I first heard of it, I thought that it's just like, you know, that book where the person is in this video game and that basically his life outside is just in a trailer and, you know, yes. it's all make believe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> ready Player One, that's it. Um, yeah, Ready Player One. But that's that's not the future that I see, or, you know, or I definitely want to see that future. I mean, I hope not. We would have failed, you know, spectacularly if we have to resort to the metaverse um, because we've because the global because the because the world has become such an unpleasant place to live in. Um, so so no, um, um, we're not focused on that as being a big solution um, to our you know social social issues. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. 
I want to talk a little bit about um, inflation as well. Uh, you've written a little bit in the in, uh, recently about inflation and uh, the potential of interest rates to go higher on a more structural basis. But I think uh, what you mentioned there as well is that you, you said inflation often contains the seeds of its own destruction. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, and this is something that I learned early in my career when I was following the uh, um, you know the the global energy markets and 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 the global natural resource markets that you know higher prices you know create a feedback loop they 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 uh, they, they incentivize greater investment in production first and foremost so that you know they are a powerful signal to incentivize greater investment in 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 oil exploration or, or mining or, or anything depending on what you are producing so ultimately the mere act of a higher price is there to, to sort of incentivize capital allocation to bring that price down ultimately. And so higher prices tend to always mean revert um, in, 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 in resources. And, and, and the other thing that they really encourage is, is innovation and, you know, um, you know um, substitution and, and efficiency. Uh, so, you know, people have always asked us, you know, how can you, you know, navigate an inflationary environment in, in the global sustainable equity strategy when you don't invest in many natural resource companies, when you don't invest in oil companies. And the surprising answer to many is that we actually have a positive correlation to the oil price in our global sustainable equity strategy oh. or have done in the past. Why is that? Yeah, yes. And it's and it's and and just to be clear, it's not a, you know, shall we say one-to-one positive correlation, lockstep, day to day, day in, day out. But the point is, is that when you've got a higher oil price or higher um, mineral prices that normally coincides with stronger economic growth um, as so you get inflation you normally get inflation and stronger economic growth going hand in hand and higher prices you know in, actually drive demand for the goods and services that many of the companies that we invest in are selling so higher prices are incentivizing companies to invest in efficiency well efficiency is one of our big investment themes yeah. um, you know we are investing in many different types of companies that are ultimately producing goods and services that are there to kind of you know make buildings more efficient or cars more efficient um, or industry more efficient and so they see increasing demand for their products it's good for their growth again with substitution higher prices encourage companies to invest in different ways of doing things and again we're investing in lots of technology companies that have got um, you know new solutions to um, solving problems and that drives demand for their products you know ultimately a lot of the companies in our in our portfolio are selling productivity and higher inflation encourages investment in productivity so that's why we've seen a you know a, a, a positive correlation ultimately with uh, you know oil prices and inflation in the past is it also the case where um the companies that you are drawn towards are, are not just inefficiency, but also tend to be probably a bit more uh, of a growth profile um, because they're in, in in that technology space. They uh, probably there's some companies that that have relatively new technologies. Does that help with sort of that inflationary pressure? Yes, um, it, absolutely, it does. You know, there is an alignment we believe between growth and inflation, and there's actually a bigger point that. Um, perhaps I should make here is that, and this might sound controversial to many, but we believe that it's axiomatic that growth will always outperform value when it comes to investing. Right. And definitely been the case though for the last 10 years. <laughs> yes. And we believe that will continue to be the case. Why, why is it? I think, and it goes back to this whole, 
you know you know history and when you know I've, I've i really went deep into looking at all the old investing textbooks and looking at sort of you know the times when they're written and 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 other types of market environment and it, it all comes back down to energy ultimately and what we had in the second half of the 20th century was this extraordinary period of just broad-based economic growth there were no limits to growth the pollution sinks weren't sort of you know overflowing we could chuck as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and it didn't really matter. We could chuck away as much plastic or waste and we didn't really see it. And so there was just sort of, you know, and then we had underneath us all, we had this very cheap, abundant natural resource situation with, with abundant and cheap oil. So what we had was we had a rising tide lifting all boats mm-hmm. in, the, in the second half of the 20th century. It was a golden age, a golden period as a free-for-all. And and I think, you know, when we sort of like created those demarcations between value investing and growth investing in the second half of the 20th century, essentially what we were saying was almost very simplistic. You're saying if you bought a company on a low valuation multiple, you would generate better returns. But you generated those better returns because every company had growth pretty much. Most companies had growth because of that rising tide lifting all boats, this incredibly um, abundant energy situation. Uh, and so a, a cheap company that's got growth will outperform a an expensive company that's got growth and that's very simplistically what a lot of the old value investing literature tell you tells you so they're, they're basically bought cheap growth stocks cheap growth stocks but now we live in a, an environment where there isn't universal growth there isn't broad-based growth yeah. we're going through a period so there, there are starting to be limits to our the growth of our economic system and they've sort of been popping up over the last couple of decades and we're now also sort of seeing a period of incredible acceleration in technological innovation, which is going to create new industries and sort of really create a lot of disruption across a lot of sectors. And so those conditions of broad-based economic growth do not exist anymore. I mean, the lifespan of a company continues to shorten and shorten and shorten. So ultimately, you've got to be finding the companies that have got innovation and growth at their core, because these are the companies that are going to keep on um, you know, generating the returns over the coming decade. And many companies that we think of as being big companies today will not be here in 10 or 15 years' time. Yeah. Now, I think you, you also mentioned that um, from that perspective that inflation might rise, that this also affects growth and value styles of investing and that you get, I think you phrased it as gyrations between uh, value and growth within the market. Can you explain it a bit more? Yes, and so I mean, so this is really about short-term gyrations, and we so we, we do believe we're going in for a period of higher volatility in markets, and essentially, as we see inflation expectations and ultimately interest, um, you know, interest rate expectations change on a shorter-term basis, that um, effectively is 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 um, you know changing the, uh, the 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 discount rate at which you sort of look at future future cash flows, and that can create volatility between what you might call traditional value stocks. And the growth stocks as those inflation expectations and interest rate expectations as those interest rate expectations get recalibrated in the short term but we would just you know we we, we want to you know remind investors or just urge people not to be careful about being wrong-footed um, in these in these gyrations because they will be short-term in nature and the secular trends that we're focused on have got are so powerful and have got such long duration over the coming decade that they that they will win out and and ultimately, what we're going to continue doing is looking at these gyrations as, 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 as moments of potential opportunity. Yeah. So the value growth debate is, is, is a very sort of old debate, and it seems to always come back at certain stages in history. But do you think that we should actually just throw it out of the window, that this whole focus on style biases? Yes, in a word. 
<laughs> and and, and uh, because because ultimately I regard myself as a value investor. And uh, you know, even though I'm investing in growth, uh, I, I want to invest in growth um, at, 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 you know where I see value. And so we are focused on those cash flows three to five years out. Um, we do um, come to an idea of what we believe a company's intrinsic value is, and we want to invest um, in share prices that are trading below what our view of that intrinsic value is. And that, might, to my definition, is is a value investor. Um, so we see value in growth, and 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 some value investing can be extremely expensive um, if you if you get it wrong yeah maybe we can finish up with a little bit of crystal ball gazing um, you, you mentioned earlier that the sustainable theme uh, goes across many sectors can you tell us some of your uh, more favorite sectors and, and, and places to look for investments at the moment uh, yes and I think this is where it gets really interesting because if you look at our sector profile we we, we have a large allocation to the IT sector. Um, you know, over 40% of the strategy is allocated to the IT sector. I mean, I suppose you could say um, almost 60% of our, of our strategy is, is outside of the IT sector. But if we just focus on the IT sector to begin with, we always highlight there's just so much diversity in, in, in the IT sector. And I find it so exciting when you, when, when you sort of see the different types of companies um, um, here. And just, and just to give a couple of you know, general examples of, of that diversity, you can get uh, a, you know, for example, a software company like Autodesk, which is the world's largest design software company, and, and its end markets, it's serving architects, engineers, construction, manufacturing um, end markets. You know, and that's really its economic risk profile. That's the risk profile of the stock. You've got to look at the end markets. Um, you know, Autodesk is a tech company, but it's really serving, you know, sort of, you know, con- you, know you know, you know, sort of the, the built environment, um, you know, the, the, the residential and commercial sectors. And then you can compare that to, say, Texas Instruments, a um, you know a semiconductor company. In fact, um, it was Jack Kirby who was one of the founders of Texas Instruments. He was the one. He was the person who first designed the integrated circuit uh, back in I think 1956 or something. So wonderful history to that company. Yeah. And 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 to be clear, Texas Instruments makes a lot more than those scientific calculators that um, that, that 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 we all know. They are uh, one of the world's leading analog semiconductor companies. And and you look at Texas Instruments today, and you compare it to 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Texas Instruments was, you know, predominantly serving the computing and communications end markets. Uh, so two thirds of its sales were to computing communications. Ten years later, seventy percent of its sales are to industrial and automotive end markets. Right. So I often ask people: Is Texas Instruments is it a tech stock, or is it something else? Is it a sort of a mix of an industrial, automotive, and and tech stock? And and that's and that is, I think, one of the you know that you know looking into Texas Instruments just gives you a snapshot of what is happening in the world today. Yeah. This sort of this proliferation of, shall we say, technology into all parts of the economy, and that's how we look at the world. And so we've got enormous diversity within our technology sector. And the way that we look at sort of the the opportunities, we've got sort of six key sort of um, parts of the economy where we find great ideas. And, and just to summarize those, that's in buildings. So we think, you know, there's a lot of exciting opportunities in buildings technology, sort of thinking about low carbon technology, efficiency technology, some really good companies in that space. So one of the other sectors that we look at is, is industry. There's huge innovations to come across industry in, in, in low carbon industry, factory automation, revolutionizing um, heavy industry and manufacturing processes. So we look at companies such as, you know, Autodesk and IPG Photonics, the, you know, the world leading fiber laser manufacturer in areas like that. 
transportation, of course, um, huge revolution to come across the transportation sector. The electrification of transportation is one of the most bankable trends that we see this decade. And, and we're really following a, a strategy of investing in the enablers. We think it's too difficult to find out which companies are going to win, uh, but ultimately they're all going to need the sensors, connectors, electric motors, all the widgets that go into making an electric car. And that's where we're focusing our efforts. Um, we're also investing in rail as well. You know, rail is one of the most carbon efficient ways of, 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 of moving people around. Um, so we still see massive opportunity or massive investment in sort of metro rail systems, you know, urban rail systems um, to move people around. Um, communications, again, huge trends around 5G, the internet of things. And again, you know, this is world where we're going to sort of digitalize, electrify, connect everything. It's, it's the internet of things. Is that a sustainable theme? Because it seems that you basically connect everything to the internet, which probably means it's on all the time, right? You know, I've, I bought a new uh, dishwasher and it has Wi-Fi and apparently you can program cycles on it. And like, yeah, I, I don't really use it, but it is possible, <laughs> right? So, but do yes. we need that? Is it, is it not just more energy being drained away? People look at computing and you often see a lot of alarming headlines in computing. Watching half an hour of Netflix is the same as driving four miles down the road. Yeah, right. Bitcoin mining, you know, in and of itself is going to contribute to global warming of two degrees. Um, you know, those, 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 those types of headlines. And so we, we've looked into that and we, we think they're sort of based on, you know, fuzzy maths, a lot of these headlines. You know, to give you the real statistics, and, and I might ask you a question here, here, Walter, and sort of ask the listeners to, to have a think as well as I, as I ask this question. Go for it. So over the last decade, we have seen a 12-fold increase in, in, in internet traffic um, around the world. We've seen an eight-fold increase in global data center capacity. And so my question is, by how much have we seen energy consumption of data centers globally increase against that backdrop? A similar level? It's flat. Okay. And why is that? Is that more the efficiency? Yeah. So there's been amazing gains in efficiency um, across the computing sector. And, you, you know, one of, one of the companies that we really um, admire is, is, is NVIDIA, uh, which has been using its, uh, its GPUs to improve data center efficiency. And uh, a couple of years ago, they released this incredible um, presentation, which showed how they were able to collapse you know, a data center with 20, with 25 servers in a row, um, 25 going to one, um, 25 servers wow. to one. And yet that, that's just sort of illustrative of the gains of efficiency that you can make. Yeah. So as well as becoming more efficient, um, you know, so the whole global computing and data sort of, you know, it's much more efficient to sort of, you know, do cloud computing than it is for everyone to have an individual, you know, hard, hard drive or server on, on site. And, and then the other thing that's really important to, to note is that the tech sector has been incredibly you know, we're at the forefront of making investments in renewables so uh, as much as 50 percent of renewable energy investment in the north in, in in the united states is direct investment from um, it companies and it you know again when you build a data center it makes total sense to build a wind farm and a solar farm around your data center because you're locking in your energy price for the next 20 25 years yeah it just makes great economic sense to sort of have complete certainty over your cost base so we're seeing a, we're seeing broad-based decarbonization across technology, and and so that's why you know we do believe the Internet of Things is 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 a great um, thing to happen because you know again it feeds into this 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 world that we're moving towards this this electrified and yeah. and when you electrify you can connect and so you electrify you digitalize um, and ultimately you decarbonize. 
Yeah, fair enough. Well, Hamish, thank you very much for your time. It was great talking to you and thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Very good to speak to you, Rata. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.